We are in three Gospels today. It has been a long time since we've been in all three synoptic Gospels together. Do you remember why? Or First of all, what are the synoptic Gospels? Good. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Thank you. As he walks out of the room. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And why are they called synoptic Gospels? We think of the, the word S-Y-N, like sync, synchronized, sort of together, um, and optic, and do the eye. And so that term has an, the idea of kind of seeing things in a similar way or following a lot of the same stories. So as you go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll notice a lot of the stories are repeated, sometimes with different wording, sometimes with exactly the same wording. So they're called synoptic because there's so much overlapping information between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is a different matter, and there's very little in John that overlaps with the other Gospels except for the time at the end of Jesus' Passion Week. So we have, finally, after a couple of years at least, Matthew, Mark, and Luke together in one lesson. And it's this lesson, Matthew 19, 13 to 15, and we'll look at Mark 10, 13 to 16, and then Luke 18, 15 to 17, and we should have the slides up here, so it's hard to get back and forth between them. You can see them on the screen. So, Matthew 19, verses 13 to 15. says, Then some children were brought to him, so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Then Mark 10, 13 to 16. And when they were bringing children to him... And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. And then Luke eighteen fifteen to 17 they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Now, this is something I mentioned last week, but just a reminder, from the end of Luke 9 to Luke 18 where we just left a couple weeks ago, Luke basically goes his own way and gives a lot of details of Jesus' ministry that are not in the other Gospels. So, remember the commissioning of 70? That's only in Luke's Gospel. Or when he visited Mary and Martha, and remember Martha was busy and Mary sat at Jesus' feet? That was only in Luke. The Good Samaritan parable, the prodigal son, the rich man and Lazarus, the Pharisee tax collector, all those parables were just in Luke. Before I get into the texts themselves, these verses about Jesus welcoming children and blessing them are used in a couple of ways. As I was studying this, and some commentators actually spent a lot of time on this. One way is to justify infant baptism, and another is to justify the belief that infants and young children who die go to heaven automatically. And I don't want to get into those topics in detail today, but it's interesting to see different reactions. Sometimes when you read, or when I study, I, I might read uh, 15 or 20 commentaries on these passages, and so it's actually 
a lot more work when I have these synoptic gospels because it triples my work. <laughs> Although sometimes I can skim it. I kind of get the idea. Or some commentators will say, see my commentary on Matthew when they're in Mark or whatever. But And these are fairly short chapters, so it's not quite as much this week. But it's just interesting to see. One, one commentator says, this passage definitely teaches this. And another will say, this does definitely not teach that. Same thing. And so you kind of pick your commentator, I guess, as where your inclinations are. So, for example, infant baptism. Again, in this, these passages... Calvin says, we employ this passage as a shield against the Anabaptists. Now, Anabaptists are, are a group of people that, that, that there's a, a, a breadth of views there, but uh, Anabaptist means to baptize again. The Anabaptists believe that infant baptism wasn't right, and so you would baptize somebody again as, as an adult. So Calvin would use these passages to speak against what the Anabaptists were saying, so in favor of infant baptism. Another commentator said, the ancient church has rightly regarded these passages as a proof in favor of the doctrine of infant baptism. And if you look at the baptism service that's laid out in the Anglican Church, the Church of England, they will use Mark 10, this passage, as a proof that you should baptize infants, a justification for it. Now, there are other commentators who say these passages don't teach that. One commentator, actually an Anglican, said this. So he would believe in infant baptism, but he thinks this doesn't doesn't fit here. He said, this story thus has no direct bearing on the issue of whether young children should be baptized. So some say yes, some say no. Another commentator says, some take this passage as an allusion to infant baptism, but there is no hint of this, and so it does not fit. So some say there's lots of hints. In fact, there's the actual doctrine here. Some say, no, it doesn't fit at all. A similar thing with the salvation of infants who die in infancy. And we have here James MacArthur, or John MacArthur, I should say, and James Boyce, who, who are, were very close friends back in the day. James Boyce has been dead for some 20 years or more. Um, they agreed on many things, but Boyce was a Presbyterian, and so he believed in infant baptism. MacArthur, of course, is a Baptist. But regarding the salvation of infants who die, MacArthur, in fact, in his commentary, spends a lot of time talking about this issue and how it relates to these passages. He says, these passages answer the important question of what happens eternally to infants or young children when they die. Whereas James Boyce says, Jesus is not teaching here about the salvation of infants. So, you can pick your John MacArthur, you can pick your James Boyce, uh, again, depending on who you're more inclined to believe. The point is, these are very difficult issues to, to discuss, and there's not a lot of biblical data about it. And so, and everybody has a tendency, I think, to sort of cherry-pick verses that will support your uh, point, even if it's tangential. And so we want to be careful when we're studying God's Word to see, is this really supporting my view, or am I just bringing my view into it? Now, obviously, these commentators can't all be right. This verse can't, at one time, teach infant baptism, and other time, at the same time, not teach infant baptism. So let's set that aside. But I thought this was interesting look sort of behind the curtain as to how commentators work sometimes. So we all have our um, our worldviews that come in, our presuppositions, our our doctrines that come in, and we want to make sure that we're careful enough not to read into the text what we want it to say, but read out of the text. That's exegesis is pulling out of the text. Eisegesis is putting into the text. We want to avoid eisegesis. Well, let's get into the text themselves and set aside infant baptism and what happens to infants who die. And we'll see here blessings requested. 
blessings requested. Matthew 19.13 says, Some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And Mark 10.13 says, They were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. And Luke 18.15 says, They were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. Now, we're not sure exactly of the setting here. It just sort of starts. Then this happened. And this happened. But in Matthew 19, just before this passage, we have Jesus uh, across the Jordan. And there says are large crowds following him. And he's healing them there. And then Mark 10, again, just before this passage in the Gospel of Mark, it says, verse 1, Getting up, Jesus went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. So these could be in settings where there had been many people around Jesus. He's healing, he's teaching. And naturally, if you have this large group of folks, people are going to bring their children and might bring their little children, their their babies. might be hard to find sitters in those days. People just didn't, you know, there was didn't have an app they could pull up on their phone and say, hey, can you sit for a little while? So you'd bring your babies with, with you wherever you went. So they, they're listening to Jesus, maybe being healed by Jesus, and it's natural for them to bring their babies to Jesus as well to to be blessed. These parents or others, doesn't say who they were, we presume it's parents, maybe grandparents or, or just friends, would bring these children, and they must have seen Jesus' power in healing and in teaching, and they wanted their children to be blessed by this great rabbi. And you would only bring your children to Jesus if you thought he would welcome this opportunity, right? You think Jesus seems like a, a good person, a nice person, uh, somebody who would love to, to bless children, so let's bring our children to him. Matthew and Mark, you'll see here, have children. Uh, Luke says babies. The word Matthew and Mark used for children could be children up to the age of puberty or so. Like the 12-year-old girl that Jesus raised from the dead was called a child. But babies is for younger kids, what we might call either infants or toddlers. So it could be a mixture of both. But we see in later on that Jesus takes these in his arms, so it's possible that at least a lot of them were, were small children that he could actually carry in his arms. <clears throat> Matthew here says that Jesus was, was had these children brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and Mark and Luke just say, touch them. And some commentators say that rabbis in those days would have children often brought to them for a blessing. So, you know, a woman rabbi, bring your child just to bless this this young one. And one commentator even said this, later evidence uh, exists for a custom of bringing children to rabbis for a blessing and prayer on the Day of Atonement. And I thought it was interesting because if you follow the Jewish calendar at all, when was the Day of Atonement? Just a few days ago. Yeah, so... Uh, this month it was October 4th and 5th. So we have this connection with Day of Atonement. So you can bring your child to a rabbi. Rabbi, please pray for my child. Please bless my child. We even have a, an example way back in the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis chapter 48. We just saw this a few weeks back in our Genesis study. Hit Genesis 48 verse 9 and Jacob's about to die, and so he wants to bless his his sons. He's already um, he's going to bless his his actual sons, but in this case, he's going to bless his grandsons through Joseph. And Joseph, verse nine, says to his father that these ones are my sons, whom God has given me here. So Jacob said, "Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them." 
verse 14, it says, Israel stretched out his hand, his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So way back, centuries before, this grandfather, Jacob, blessed his grandsons in this way, laying hands on them and praying a prayer over them. Well, those are the blessings requested. Let's go back to the blessings forbidden. Blessings forbidden. Matthew 19, verse 13. It says here, And the disciples rebuked them. Uh, or Mark 10, 13 says, Again, the disciples rebuked them. And then Luke eighteen fifteen says, When the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. So we have here the disciples rebuking these these parents or these adults bringing the children. Now, we've seen this word rebuked in other places. Jesus rebuked demons. Jesus rebuked a storm. But the disciples used their rebukes for these people whose only offense was wanting Jesus to pray for their children. The disciples probably thought that Jesus was too important to bother with these little ones. Uh, Charles Simeon, a commentator from a couple centuries ago, said this, of these disciples, what they might have thought. This time, or rather his time, they thought, was too precious to be so occupied. His work too important to be so interrupted. His engagements too numerous to admit of such intrusions. His fatigues too great to be so needlessly increased. Have you ever been in a restaurant or someplace where a celebrity shows up, a limo pulls up, and there's paparazzi cameras flashing, and somebody gets out of a car, and there's, there's a big phalanx of big guys around somebody. The, the bodyguards there. It's their job to keep people away from this important person. And that's sort of how the disciples may have seen themselves. It's their job to guard Jesus from the riffraff, from the people who, who shouldn't be bothering him with their attentions. And I can't help but imagine how the parents must have felt, maybe the children as well, if you had wanted to bring your child to Jesus and you see him there maybe in the house, and and you want to bring your child there, and the disciples say, no, go away, you're not welcome here. How humiliating that would be, how upsetting it would be. You'd be hurt, maybe even angry. You know, I just want to have my child blessed by the great rabbi, and these men are keeping him away. Well, that's the disciples' reaction. Keep the children away, rebuking the, the parents. <clears throat> but as we know from the children's song, that most of us learned in Sunday school, Jesus loves the little children. Though the disciples rebuke the children and their parents, Jesus loves them. But before Jesus shows his tender love for the children, he has some tough love for his disciples. And so we get from blessings requested to blessings forbidden. Now we have blessings demanded by Jesus. Matthew nineteen fourteen, Jesus said, Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In Mark ten fourteen, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And Luke 18, verse 16, says, Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me. 
and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So instead of rebuking the ones who brought the children to the disciples, Jesus rebuked the disciples themselves. Mark says, notice, that Jesus was indignant. And this is the only time this word is used for Jesus. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, we kind of get good insights into one disciple. Who is that? Who do we think Mark got most of his information from about Jesus' life? Peter, right. We can't say 100%, but that's likely. And so you can imagine old Peter sitting down with Mark and telling Mark stories of Jesus. And you think, if you were recalling a story yourself, Peter might say, boy, Jesus sure was upset when we tried to keep those children away. He was indignant. Later we see the disciples themselves indignant. Remember when the, the woman anoints Jesus' feet with that expensive perfume, and it says the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? They were upset this woman would waste this perfume on Jesus' feet. Another time, uh, Luke thirteen fourteen, we have a synagogue official who was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, but not on the Sabbath day. So we have the disciples and the synagogue official who are indignant when they see an injustice or a wrong. Jesus himself sees an actual wrong, and he is indignant about it, righteously indignant about it. Mark is the gospel writer who shows us more than any other Jesus' strong emotion. And just one example, in Mark 3, 5, when Jesus had, was, was going to heal a man in the synagogue who had a withered arm, Mark 3, 5 says, After looking around at them, that is the Pharisees, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Mark is The, the other gospel writers, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have that story. Only Mark mentions that Jesus was angry at their unbelief. So Mark really emphasizes Jesus' strong emotions. But when he's angry, when he's indignant... He's righteously angry. He's righteously indignant. When a true uh, sin has been committed, a true injustice is there, he's indignant about it. And you can see how important these children were to Jesus when you see his indignation when he's kept away from them. This is no small thing the disciples are doing. This is not just an, an annoyance to Jesus. He is indignant. He's, he's angry about this because he loves these children and the disciples are getting in the way. The disciples were denying a blessing to the parents and the children. And beyond that, while they presumably thought they were doing Jesus a favor, they were actually denying Jesus the joy of the blessing. So they were denying Jesus' joy. They were denying the parents and the children joy by their wrong-headed ideas about Jesus' need for protection. Notice here, uh, the, 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 the gospel writers are a little bit different in the way they express things. But Luke says this in Luke eighteen sixteen. He says, but Jesus called for them. Only Luke mentions this. Jesus actually called for the children. It's like he, he waves the children over. Okay, I'm, I'm done with the disciples now. Uh, you, you guys, come, come come to me. It's okay. And he beckons over the children while he corrects the disciples. And while the disciples would send them away, Jesus called them to himself. And Jesus gives here two commands, one positive and one negative. In case they're not paying too close attention, you might emphasize something. You give a, a positive command to your kids, do this. A negative command, don't do that. And Jesus does the same thing. He says, let the children alone in Matthew. 
In Mark and Luke, he says, permit the children to come to me. Allow them to come. And then he has a negative command. Do not hinder them from coming to me. Get out of the way. Step aside. Let them through. And why is that? Why does he want the kids to come? He says this, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now notice here that Matthew says kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke say kingdom of God. We've seen this before, where Matthew prefers the term kingdom of heaven. He's writing to Jews, and the Jews tended to avoid using the name of God when they could, so they did use the word heaven in God's name's place. So we might say, for heaven's sake, instead of for God's sake, even in English. We often use heaven in place of the word God. And so Matthew tends to use kingdom of heaven where the other gospel writers say kingdom of God. And Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And note that he, he says such as these, that, it, that is those who are like these children. So he, he's not saying that the kingdom of heaven consists of children. So that would not necessarily speak towards the issue of infant baptism or those who die in infancy. But the fact that this is like that. This is an, 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 an illustration, an analogy. These children are a picture of the kinds of people who make it into God's kingdom. Now we can ask ourselves, what is the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven? And I've talked about this many times. But let's just remind ourselves, the kingdom of God is where God is, where the king is. It's where the king rules. One commentator says this, The kingdom is the rule of God in heart and life, together with all the blessings that result from this rule. And I've said this before, we have the kingdom of God being past, present, and future. There's different aspects. And so when you're looking at the the word of God, you want to see what context is Jesus talking about. So, for example, back in Matthew 12, Jesus says, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the kingdom of God came in the past when Jesus came, because Jesus is the king. But it's also future. In Matthew twenty-five thirty-four, Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats, and the king says to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there is a future kingdom to come when Christ comes back and will set up his kingdom. So there's a, a past aspect and a future aspect to his kingdom. There's also a present aspect when we are saved. Look at Matt, uh, Luke 18. Go to Luke 18, just after this passage we're looking at today. And we'll look at this sometime in the future. Luke 18, verse 25. They've spoken to this man, who this rich young ruler he's called. Verse 24, Jesus says, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So we talk about entering the kingdom of God. So that's the context here. The question then from the disciples is, verse 26, then who can be saved? And so we can see here a parallel that entering the kingdom of God is related to being saved. So when you are saved, you enter the kingdom of God. You're welcome. In fact, uh, Paul says in Colossians, we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we as Christians have a present reality of being in God's kingdom 
It's not consummated yet. There's a future kingdom to come, which is what we pray for, right? Thy kingdom come, the Lord's prayer. But the kingdom is now, and it is in the future. It is forever. Now the question is, in what context or what what meaning do we give the the term kingdom of God here, kingdom of heaven in these passages? And I think in this case, it's particularly looking at the reign of Christ in the hearts of his people and eternally in heaven. So it has that present and future aspect. We we can enter the kingdom now uh, by God's grace, and then we will stay in his kingdom forever. This is the blessings of salvation that he gives us now and forever. So if that's the kingdom of God, how does that relate to the fact that the kingdom of, of God belongs to such as these? How does it relate to children? And Jesus doesn't say exactly, but I think he's probably talking about children's humility, their lack of accomplishment, having nothing to offer God but simple trust. You can't, uh, a child doesn't have all sorts of letters after the name, PhDs and all these accomplishments and so forth. We were talking about Mozart the other day. Mozart had lots of accomplishments when he was five, but everybody else has very little to show for it. When you know, Not too many five-year-olds can do much, which is fine. They're still learning. They're still growing, but they don't have this resume. Everybody have, see a resume on LinkedIn for a five-year-old or a ten-year-old? They're not there because they don't have that much to, to show for their lives yet, but that God is working in them. But that's how we come to Christ. We don't have a resume of our accomplishments. Uh, we could look back at Matthew 18 to see a similar idea uh, to to explain or to justify this interpretation. Look at Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4. Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me repeat that. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we have humility connected with being like a child and entering into the kingdom of heaven. So there's there's a link, I think, between humility, that is you have nothing to give God, and that is what gives you allows you to have entrance into God's kingdom. You also might be reminded as you think about this entering into the kingdom, or having the kingdom, you might think of the verse from the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 3. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like children. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. And this word in Matthew of poor is not is used for beggars. It's not just for the, the working poor, but it's those who have absolutely nothing. And these people, these poor in spirit, see their utter spiritual poverty and they cry out to God for help. This is not somebody who thinks, I'm a pretty good guy and God would be lucky to have me in the kingdom, this is not something you apply for. You might want to get into college or, or get a job and you have your resume of all your, your good things you ever did and how smart you are and how wonderful it would be to have you with them. That's not how you get into heaven. You don't get into heaven by uh, backslapping the God or, or cajoling him or impressing him. God isn't impressed with those things. You come with nothing but your sins and you lay them at the feet of the cross and ask for forgiveness. Lloyd-Jones says this, 
this, this being poor in spirit from Matthew 5. It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. Or you could be reminded of Bartimaeus. Remember the, the blind man in Mark 10. All he could say was, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. In fact, we can go back to Luke 18. We just saw this a few weeks ago. Luke 18, where we have the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. How did the Pharisee want to pray to God? He prayed to God by saying all the good things he did and all the bad things he didn't do. That's how the Pharisee thought he could get into the kingdom of God. But the tax collector, Luke 18, verses 13 and 14, the tax collector was standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So this this tax collector was justified because he asked for God's mercy. He didn't claim to be the best at keeping the law like the Pharisee did. He just said, I'm a sinner. I, I can't even look at you, God. I'm so ashamed of my sin. Just save me. And this man was humbled before God, and God exalted him. Children are humbled, and those who are like children are the ones who enter into the kingdom. The poor in spirit are the ones who enter the kingdom of heaven. So this tax collector had humble, childlike faith versus the Pharisee who boasted of his accomplishments. And we could think also of that great hymn, Rock of Ages, which says this, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. So that's what this means to have it, to be like a child to enter God's kingdom. And Jesus is going to speak a little bit more about this when he says childlikeness is in fact required. Childlikeness is required, Mark 10, 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. In Luke eighteen seventeen, it says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Look familiar? Same words up there. I'm not sure it's the same in the Greek, but same idea. <clears throat> Note this is only in Mark and Luke, and it may be because, as I just read earlier, Matthew has already said this in chapter 18, verse 3. He said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So for Matthew, maybe it was redundant to include it here as well. The fact that Jesus had said this earlier in Matthew 18 makes what the disciples did all the more sinful because they should have known that lesson. Jesus has already talked to them about what childlike faith is that you need to become like a child to enter God's kingdom. They'd already heard it, and yet they had missed it. And Jesus says here, truly, I say to you, again, don't skip over those things like that. Jesus is, the, the word truly means, is, is amen. He's saying, listen to me, this is important. Pay attention, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And Jesus reinforces this point from the previous verses. This childlike faith isn't the best of multiple options to enter the kingdom. There's not many paths to the kingdom. There's one childlike one, and there's another maybe uh, teenage like one and one grown up like one and, and an old man like one way to get to heaven. No, there's only one way to get to heaven. That's the child like way. It's the only option. Have you ever been to a, a place like a daycare center where there's a, 
a grown-up door, and there's a kid's door next to it. It's kind of cute. There's a little door next to it for the kids to go through. Well, Jesus' point here is that the only door to heaven is child-sized. There's not a grown-up entrance to heaven. There's only a child-sized door, a little door. You have to get on your knees. If, if you're big like me, maybe you get stuck a little bit. You need to push. But the child-sized door is the only door to get into God's kingdom. It's not. We can sort of mix these metaphors, but we think the gate's wide open. The gate for going into God's kingdom is a small door. It's, it's just big enough for a child, a child-sized soul, you might say. And you have to humble yourself to go in on your knees before God in repentance and faith and go through that door into God's kingdom. This is for those who are humble. They don't carry, again, any of their own accomplishments. There are no things to boast of like the Pharisee did. They just say, God have mercy on me. Now, all this talk about being like children to get into God's kingdom doesn't mean that children are not sinners. Uh, a lot of your parents out there, you know they come out sinning. They don't have to be taught to sin. Sin is not an influence of their friends or television or the media or whatever it might be. Your kids don't need any of that stuff to be sinners because they, they're born that way. They, we have verses like Romans 5.12, which says, Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. All of us are subject to death. And the fact that infants die is a sign that while they didn't necessarily commit a sin themselves, they were in sin in Adam because the wages of sin is death. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David knew, especially after his sin was revealed with Bathsheba, that he was brought forth in iniquity. He was a sinner from the moment he was conceived it's important to remember. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We're not like some uh, good creature that comes out of the womb and we're good and good and good until we, at some point, fall. That's called the Pelagian view. That is, we are good until we sin, but rather we are sinners in Adam. We have all fallen in Adam, and so we sin as a result of our of our nature. We sin because that's what we are inclined to do. But having said all that about children, they are sinners, but there is something about children, this humility, again, they have nothing to offer in just a simple plea for mercy. Like a child would say, Daddy, can you help me, please? And the, the father gladly says, sure, I would love to help you. I'd love to encourage you, to bless you. Well, now, finally, after this sidetrack with the disciples, the children get what they came for, and we see the blessings granted. The blessings granted. Only in Matthew and Mark. Matthew 19.15 says, After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And in Mark 10.16 says, He took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. And Jesus also did something like this in Mark 9. It says, Taking a child, he set him before them, And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And I I love seeing these passages. And and it's easy to overlook. We we maybe focus on the the red letters sometimes, reading our Bible, uh, what Jesus says things. But Jesus does a lot of things, too. Maybe we have blue letters for that. I don't know. What Jesus does. This is a beautiful picture. Jesus takes a child and holds the child in his arms. And each child that is to be blessed, he takes in his arms and puts his hand on them and he blesses them, one after the other until they're all done. So often, 
we see Jesus doing this. He, he could have stayed aloof. Did Jesus have to touch to heal anybody? He, he healed one boy from 20 miles away. Didn't have to touch him. Jesus could have blessed from a distance. He could have said, hey, kids out there, God bless you. Nice to see you. And then walk off. But he didn't. Jesus connects with people by touching them. He touches lepers. We see when he heals Peter's mother-in-law, he touches her. He touches blind men. He touches a deaf mute. He touches, remember he puts, makes that clay and puts it on the man's tongue. Would you want to put it on man's tongue? Or, or on his eyes? It's kind of, kind of gross. It's, I mean, if you have nursing backgrounds or doctors, whatever, you kind of used to that kind of thing. But it's kind of awkward to touch somebody like that. But Jesus did it. He loved to touch people. He loved to connect with them. He knew that was important to them. Not just shouting healing or blessings from a distance, from a, from a safe distance, you might say. But when the disciples fell to the ground in terror at Jesus' transfiguration, it says that Jesus walked over and touched them. They were afraid. And Jesus touched them. And Jesus himself allows himself to be touched by those who would be considered outcast or unclean. Remember the woman with the hemorrhage? She touches his cloak and she's healed. We have the sinful woman who wet Jesus' feet with her tears of repentance and kissed his feet and anointed them with perfume. And that Pharisee said, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this is, he wouldn't let her touch him. But Jesus was glad to let her touch him because she was showing her repentance and her faith and her love for him. And so Jesus would touch people as he healed them, as he ministered to them, and allowed himself in turn to be touched by them. Jesus didn't block himself off from humanity as he you might think he had every right to do. The fact that he actually came from heaven to be among men, to, to be a, a baby, to to grow up, to to uh, sort of get in the, the muck and the mire with fallen humanity, and gladly did that, lovingly did that, and was with these people who were, in many cases, so abusive to him, so hostile to him, and yet he still loved them. He would still touch them, speak to them, and let them touch him. Jesus, of course, had the heart of his father. Remember Isaiah 40, verse 11. Like a shepherd, it says, God will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Just as the father carries his people like a shepherd carries lambs, Jesus himself would carry these little ones and bless them and love them and show the Father's love to them. Do we have any questions before we wrap up a couple applications? We have a little time. Yeah. Uh, the old Hitler baby analogy. Um, I, I think if his parents brought Hitler to to Jesus, he would gladly bless them. Yeah, some people would say that Jesus would only bless those that he actually saves. And so that's an indication that these children of these faithful parents, getting back to infant baptism, faithful parents bring their children to Jesus to be blessed, and so they're, he would only bless those whom he is going to save. I think Jesus has a love for children, even as we might have a love for children, even if some children really are obnoxious and annoy us and might not want to spend a lot of time with them or glad we're not their parents. But we still have can have a love for children. I think Jesus would, would do that as well. And Jesus 
would, in a sense, also have a love for Hitler as a grown man, too. Um, not a saving love, as far as we can tell. Uh, but we we do know that, that God has um, has a general love for, for all that he shows and his, his general mercies. And so that, that's a, a grace that we, we can have from him, even if it's not a, salva- a salvation grace. We call it common grace. Any other questions? All right, well, let's close with a few thoughts. Fairly straightforward, I think. First of all, most important, have you ever come to Christ humbly as a child? Maybe you are a child. Have you come to Christ as a child? Jesus said in John six thirty-seven, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. But there's a condition Jesus doesn't say there. You can't just come to Jesus like the Pharisee might. You can't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm, I'm your, I'm your guy. I, I'm so in tune with you. You'd be so lucky to have me on your team. I, I've been to the Bible college, been to seminary. I know all the languages and know the, the Bible backwards and forwards. I know all the theological arguments. Um, I'm a good guy. I, I give to the poor. We even see that with the, the man, uh, the rich young ruler. He has all these things on his, in the prose column. All the good things on his resume. But what he didn't have is humility. He didn't have the love for Christ to be willing to give up all his stuff for Christ's sake. And so if you're coming to Christ with all of your good deeds, with all of your good features, with, with your long resume, Christ does not accept that because you're trying to come through your your self-sized door. You can only come with it the child-sized door. Drop all of the the pretense, drop all the self-righteousness and say, God, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I have nothing to bring to you. As the hymn writer said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And in that humble, repentant faith, Christ will receive you and he will save you. He will bless you. Another important thing for us who are parents, those who may be parents in the future, are you, you parents bringing your children to Jesus. And I know that you have. I know all of you here, I know that you've tried to bring your children to Jesus day by day. And we bring G- G- our children to Jesus in a number of ways. Obviously, he's not physically here with us. We can't bring him to put our child in his lap. But we bring G- children to Jesus by bringing them to his word, by bringing them to his throne in prayer. And we bring our children to Jesus by bringing him to worship with his people. So in the fellowship of the saints, all these fears of life, we, we bring our children to Jesus through these means, and we need to be faithful to do that day by day. And so you might ask yourself, is there anything that you do or don't do that hinders your children from coming to Christ? Do they see your love for Christ, his word, and his church? Or does your life hinder them from coming to Christ? Maybe you're not actually rebuking your children from coming to Christ, but your life is something that keeps them from following Christ. It's, it's a blockage. It's a stumbling block for them to come to Christ. This is a good question to ask yourself, and it can be kind of scary, but parents, ask yourself, if your children were asked what's really important to mom and dad, what would they say? Might be something good to do. Maybe you don't want to do it. I don't know. If you have little kids, just say, what, what do you think is most important to mommy or to daddy? And see what they say. Is it is it work? Is it 
the Seahawks between September and January? Is it the Mariners or, or is it is it money? Is it some hobby? Any anything or is it to say my my mommy, my daddy loves Jesus, loves God, loves the church, and loves me? What would they answer? And it, it could be a time of good soul searching for all of us as parents to say what is important to us and are we communicating that to our children by the way we live? Or the things in our life? Are we are we hypocrites? Are we good at church, sort of good Christians at church and get home and we're, we're horrible to our kids or we're, we're, uh, we're hypocrites. We, we show anger or we, we show, do other things in our, in our lives that are just unrighteous, unholy and our kids see that. They think, well, my dad, my mom at church, they're a different person than they are at home. They're going to see through that and that is going to hinder your child from coming to Christ. And so God forbid that any of us should ever be like the disciples and hinder our own children from coming to Christ. And may God give us a grace to walk forward to point our kids to Jesus day by day. Let's close in prayer. Father, these are sobering words, really, because we know that we so often can hinder people from coming to Christ through our own lives. We think that Jesus is, is too good or too holy, or our own interests are more important than his, and we focus on what we want and not what is important to Christ. May we, Father, love our children enough and others enough to keep bringing them to Christ, to point them to Christ and say, this is this is the Savior. Go to him in humility and in faith as a child, and he will bless you. He will save you forever. May we never be a stumbling block to a, to a child or to anyone else who might want to come to Christ. We do pray for those who have never come to you in faith as a child. May they set aside all that they have accomplished all that they might claim proudly and say, I have nothing to bring except my sin. I lay it at the feet of the cross. I pray that you would forgive it by the death of Christ for my sake and help me to have eternal life, to walk in a way that honors you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.